um, I'll encourage you to grab a Bible if you uh, brought one, and you can turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have three more weeks left in uh, the study of this great book. It's been challenging uh, and encouraging at the same time. Um, if you looked at our culture, um, our world kind of has an in- some interesting views about what heaven is like. Or like the afterlife or eternity. Um, if you want to have a laugh uh, this afternoon, just Google like far side cartoons about heaven. Okay? Because you read some of it and you're like, man, it's just interesting. Oftentimes it's very cloudy, like clouds. And, you know, St. Peter is standing behind a, a podium like this. And he's kind of checking people in making sure you're on the guest list or whatever, and then the gates can open. Uh, sometimes there's pictures of escalators up to heaven and people sitting on clouds playing the harp, and some people in our culture have this view of like, well, you become an angel when you go to heaven. You get wings maybe and a harp and a white robe. Um, oftentimes, I've done lots of funerals, and even um, people who, who aren't followers of Jesus, they'll often talk about, well, at least, you know, Aunt Margaret or whoever is in a better place, right? At least they're somewhere better. We may not know where that is, but at least they're somewhere better. Um, I've heard lots of times, well, heaven is just you get to do um, all your favorite things forever. So if you like golfing, it's heaven's a golf course, and some, for some people, that's hell. Um, if you like uh, fishing or whatever, right? And it's this idea of heaven is just forever getting to do whatever you want. I think even the, the Christian view of heaven is sometimes misguided. Um, lots of times uh, it's presented as, well, the goal of Christianity is that we all just kind of escape earth. Earth is bad, and eternity is just kind of spiritual up there somewhere. And God at the end is just going to blow up the earth and we'll just live as spirits forever up there somewhere, right? I'll fly away, oh glory. That's the goal. Let's just escape earth bad, heaven good. Uh, we talk a lot about winning souls, right? That's the, that's the most important part of a person. Their bodies, blah, just win their souls for Jesus. I remember growing up um, uh, thinking that church, uh, heaven was going to be just like a really, really long church service. And I remember as a kid, I'm like, church is boring. And we're going to have to do that forever? Right? Just like lots of misguided ideas of what, what are we going to do for eternity? What, what is it going to be like? It might shock you to know that like... Much of popular Christianity's view of heaven and, and eternity is actually not quite biblical. Um, that, that was my view growing up. The earth is bad, our bodies don't matter, and the goal is that we just kind of all float away and heaven is some kind of ethereal, floaty, spiritual existence somewhere else and that's what it will be like forever. Um, In this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, he's correcting a wrong view that the Corinthians had of the resurrection, and specifically uh, the end, eternity, the resurrection of the dead. Not necessarily Jesus' resurrection, but that's included, but actually believers' future resurrection. Because here's the issue, um, in that day and age, and it actually kind of mirrors our day and age, the, the primary worldview was very dualistic. 
It was this idea of physical is bad and spiritual is good. And uh, much of the Greek and Roman worldview in that day was eternity is not physical. It's just the spiritual. You want to shed off all of this bad physical stuff. Did we not see that in chapter 6, right? When, when Paul wrote, one of the Corinthian sayings was, food for stomach, stomach for food, God's going to destroy them both. And it was used to justify, eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, uh, sleep around with whoever you want because the physical's bad anyways. God's just going to destroy it all in the end. All that matters is the spiritual, Right? And what Paul's going to do and what he's done in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is he's making a case for the resurrection. Um, Jesus' resurrection, to be sure, but also our resurrection in the future. And what Paul's going to do in our passage this morning is he's going to say, you can't have one without the other. So there's three kind of sections in our passage. We're going to look at verses 12 to 34. This morning, and Paul is going to give um, two theological arguments, one from the negative and one from the positive, about why the future resurrection of human beings is a fact. And then he's going to end with, well, here's then the implications of how you should live now if the resurrection is true. So three sections. So number one, verses 12 to 19 Here's Paul's first argument. If believers aren't resurrected, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. So it's the argument from the negative, okay? So verse 12, he says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So look, it's important the, the believers in Corinth weren't necessarily denying the resurrection of Jesus, but they were denying rather that followers of Jesus would one day be raised from the dead. Because look, like in verses 1 to 11, Paul laid out why we can believe that the resurrection of Jesus is a historically verifiable fact. It happened. And he says, this is what you guys are holding on to. This is the gospel which you believed. So it wasn't as if all of the Christians in Corinth were saying, we actually don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. What they're saying is, okay, Jesus was raised from the dead, but we aren't going to be raised from the dead. A future resurrection is not going to happen. And so Paul's whole first argument from the, ne from the negative side of things, he's saying, if believers aren't going to be resurrected, then logically, Jesus wasn't resurrected. So what the, the, the Christians in Corinth were doing is they, they, had brought, they had bought into the Greek philosophical worldview that said, there's no such thing as a resurrection, right? Right? Uh, once you die, it's just the end, and then you exist in some kind of shadow world spiritually. So Paul, I love, Paul's brilliant. He's going to argue logically. He's saying, like, use reason and logic. If there is no resurrection in the future, how can you say that there was a resurrection in the past? He's like, if believers aren't resurrected one day, then that means that neither was Jesus 
And there are massive implications to that. He's going to list seven things that are true if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Verse 14, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So the word vain means worthless. It means void. So he says, if if there's no resurrection in the future, meaning Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the apostles' preaching is pointless. And then he says, and your faith, your belief in Jesus is worthless. Um, He goes on, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So implication, the apostles are lying if there's no resurrection. He says, we're just misrepresenting God. You shouldn't listen to them. Verse 16, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Meaning your faith is useless. It is foolishness. It is silly to believe in Jesus if there is no resurrection from the dead. And he says, and the implication of that is we're all still stuck in our sin. Jesus' death meant nothing. If he wasn't raised from the dead. Verse 18, he continues, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Meaning, uh, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have died believing in Jesus, and we say things like, oh, they made it to the end. They're with Jesus. Paul says, not so. They're just destroyed and dead. Their faith didn't save them if there's no resurrection. And then lastly, in verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And the word pitied means miserable. So Paul says, listen, if there's no resurrection and Jesus wasn't raised from the dead as as a logical implication, and all we have As Christians, as well, it gives me hope in this life. Paul says, you should be the most miserable person on the planet. You often hear um, atheists or uh, non-Christians say, oh, well, Christianity, people just use it as a crutch to get through life. Paul says, if that's true, then you're the most miserable person on the earth. If there's no future resurrection, then your, your faith means nothing. So notice what Paul is doing is saying, Logically, if there's no future resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised, then look at all of the implications. Your faith is useless. The apostles' preaching is useless. useless. They were lying. Um, all of your loved ones who were followers of Jesus who are dead, they're not in a better place. They're just destroyed. And we are miserable people. So it's like Paul saying, you can, you can believe that there's no resurrection, but there's implications. There's consequences to our faith. Um, If you have kids, you'll know that lots of times children um, like to do things that are dangerous um, because it's fun, right? So um, uh, we have three kids, and especially my middle child, Ruby, she, I worry for her because she has no fear about anything. My other daughter has too much fear about everything, and she doesn't want to do anything, but Ruby's like, I'm game. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. So I built um, a t- kind of like a treehouse platform in our uh, tree in the backyard, and it's probably, you know, 
up here, eight feet or whatever, and then I thought it would be a good idea to then put our trampoline underneath that so that they could jump off of the treehouse platform onto the trampoline. And my wife's like, mm. I'm like, no, danger's good. And so they did that, and it was fun. But like for Ruby, it just wasn't enough. So now I'm going to climb up onto the platform and then climb the skinniest branch that I can and just kind of hold on and then jump off of that onto the trampoline because that's more thrilling. And watch that. I'm going to do it with my eyes closed. And it's like, oh, man. Then she asked... Dad, you have an eight-foot ladder. Can you take the ladder and put the ladder on the platform that's already built so then I can climb up the ladder and then jump off so it's 20 feet in the air and land on the tram? And then finally we had a conversation. Well, no, because gravity exists and you will break your legs. Now, right, Ruby could say, I don't believe in gravity. Oh, okay, then go for it. No, it's like, you have to realize whether you believe in it or not, it's there and there are consequences for denying it, right? Like you can deny, you can say, I don't believe that just eating candy and sugar is bad for you. I just don't believe that. Okay, try it. You will die. Doesn't matter if you think that it's true or not, there's implications, right? So growing up, um, my parents would make dentist appointments, and we would go, and I hated going to the dentist. And when I moved out, I said, great, I don't have to go to the dentist anymore. It's a scam. So it was like 10 years. I know, it's disgusting. It was like 10 years. I don't have to go to the dentist anymore. This is awesome. And then I get married, and my wife is like, you're an idiot. You need to go to the dentist. And you know what happened? Five cavities. So listen, in all of life, you can decide to deny something, I just don't believe that I don't, I don't, I don't have to go to the dentist. Okay, fine. You can live like that, but there's consequences, there's implications for your beliefs. This is Paul's whole point. Um, I follow a, 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 a pastor on YouTube, and every year he says, I, I compiled all of the worst Easter sermons for, for my viewers to watch, so you don't have to watch them. And there was one that I watched one year, and it was from a very progressive church that's like, you know, trying to change Orthodox Christianity, and we don't have to believe the Bible and things like that. And the whole sermon that this pastor preached was, Jesus didn't actually physically rise from the dead, and that's not important. He rose in our hearts. Paul would say, if that's the case, there is no Christianity then. Right? So you can deny the resurrection, but Paul's whole first point from the negative is if you deny a future resurrection, you are denying the resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe that one day believers are going to be raised from the dead to spend eternity in physical bodies, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and all of Christianity is a scam. Right, that's his whole first point. So you Corinthian Christians who in your worldly wisdom are going, okay, fine, Jesus was raised from the dead, but no one else will ever be raised from the dead. Paul says there's implications for believing that. Just like saying there is no gravity, I'm going to jump off my roof. You will find out that there's consequences. This is Paul's first whole point. If believers are not going to be raised from the dead, then logically Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. His second point, verses 20 to 28, Jesus has been resurrected. So believers 
will be resurrected. He's, he's going to paint a, a picture of the future, and, and it is glorious. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does Paul mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, the first fruits, what would, what would happen, it was a, um, an offering that you gave to the Lord. So before the full harvest, you would gather a smaller little portion of it, the first fruits, right? The first of the harvest, and then you would give that to God. He gets the first and the best, right? And it was a sign. As they, as they gathered the first fruits, it was, yes, Lord, this is for you, but it was also a sign and a celebration that the entire harvest is going to follow this. This is, just, this is just the first of it. This is just a portion of it. We got a whole harvest coming. Like, it was a guarantee that there is more coming. So what Paul is doing is he's using that metaphor to say the resurrection of Jesus, what it did was it promised the rest of the harvest. The resurrection of Jesus promised the future resurrection of believers. Jesus was the first of many who would be raised from the dead. His uh, resurrection body gives us a foretaste of our future, of what's to come. What is our resurrection going to be like and in the end? And uh, next week, Paul's going to answer questions like, well, what, our body, what are our bodies going to look like, right? Because that's naturally the questions that come. But Paul's point is, Jesus, he's the first fruits. We look at that, and he's the first and the best. He was raised from the dead, but his resurrection is a guarantee. Oh, baby, there's more to come. There's way more to come. Our own resurrections are going to be like his. He goes on, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Right? He's giving the, the comparison between Adam and Jesus. He says, Adam was the first man. And what happened? Well, Adam and Eve sinned, and through Adam, death came. Now, through Jesus, he's, he's sometimes called the second Adam, the second man. What came through Jesus? Well, life comes through Jesus. Right? The, Adam and Jesus are two representatives of humankind. Adam represents fallen humanity, and Jesus represents redeemed humanity. Adam introduced death to the human race. Jesus came to eliminate death and, and produce life. Jesus was raised from the dead, and at his second coming, those who belong to him will be raised from the dead. So this... This kind of changes our view of the resurrection of Jesus. The, resur the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just God's one-time intervention that rescued him from death, but the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of God's renewal of all things. This is why Paul goes on, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Paul, Paul's giving a glorious picture of what's going to happen. Jesus is going to return and he's going to wipe out all of his enemies, put them under his rule. He's going to destroy every rule, every authority, every power. He's going to destroy death. And then it's like Jesus is going to take his perfect kingdom and he's destroyed all others and he's going to come and he's going to place it at God the Father's feet, so to speak. Right? And, and so even Jesus himself, we're told, right, there's, there's differences of authority in the Trinity. Jesus himself is going to say, here, I'm giving you the kingdom, God, the Father. And Jesus then is saying, I'm going to subject myself to you. And then God, of course, like elevates Jesus and he's the Savior. And, he, and it's this beautiful picture of the Trinity working, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But do you, do you hear how amazing our future is? Like, especially look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If our future is simply a spiritual existence, then who cares if death is destroyed or not? Right? If, if, if we're not physical beings for eternity, and we just live as spirits up there, why... Why does death have to be destroyed? Like the fact that verse 26 is in there, Paul is saying, this is very, very good news. This is great news. The, the great enemy of humankind is death. Like I'll give you an illustration. John 11, right? Jesus' friend has died, Lazarus. And Jesus comes, and he's been dead for four days, and he sees, he talks with Mary and with Martha, and then we're told that Jesus, um, he, he sees the, the weeping and the wailing, and Mary and Martha and all of their friends are just so broken up about their brother dying, and, they're, and it, the word uses that they're like crying out loudly, like wailing and weeping, and they are so torn up about it. And it says that Jesus, we're told the word is that he was deeply moved. And we read that and we go, oh, okay, he was a little bit emotional. The word in the Greek means that Jesus was angry. And you go, well, what is he angry about? Is he angry that everyone, stop crying, it's so annoying. No, the word that is used for that when it says that Jesus uh, is angry, it's actually uh, that he snorted with anger. It is used most often of horses, right? If you know horses, when they kind of rear up and then they snort and they're angry, that's what Jesus felt when he looked at the, the devastation that death does to us. He was mad. He said, it's not supposed to be like that. Look, I have stood at dozens of grave signs, and families are weeping and wailing and burying their loved ones, and every time I have said in my heart, it's not supposed to be like this. And people say, oh, well, death's just a part of life. It's natural. No, it's not. It's not supposed to be like that. So when Paul says, oh, dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back, and guess what? Death is going to be destroyed. We should all go, yes! Yes, the great enemy. Like, read Revelation 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
And I think we're all going to go, na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye. It'll be like, good riddance. Death is gone. Praise the Lord. Look, your future, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is glorious. So let me explain biblically how the biblical writers describe what, e- what eternity is going to be like. Right now, if you're a follower, of, or, or, or right now, actually anyone who dies, your body is put into the ground, and your spirit goes to one of two places. Um, Jesus and the New Testament writers uh, said, if you're a follower of Jesus, you go to a place called paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And here's an interesting tidbit. That word in Greek means, today you'll be with me in the garden. That's interesting. And then if you're not a follower of of Jesus, the biblical writers say that you go to, there's a few different names. You go to a place called Hades, or you go to the grave. And then Jesus one day is going to return. And we're told that at Jesus' return, like Paul says, he's going to vanquish all of his enemies, and then the dead will be raised to life. You will somehow, in some way, be reunited to your body, but it will be different than your body now, but it will be flesh and blood. And then it says this great judgment happens, and those who have faith in Jesus They are allowed to exist in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who have denied Jesus, we're told, then are sent to hell. But then, look, the the goal of your eternity is not to just escape to heaven. Do you know in Revelation it says that actually heaven comes down to earth? And God's space and our space, the spiritual and the physical, completely overlap. And God says, now I'm going to dwell with my people But on earth, a renewed and restored, perfect earth. And you will spend eternity in a physical, resurrected body. Like in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve lived in this perfect overlap with with God's, his very presence. Heaven and earth overlapped. That's what we're headed for. So again, you just, I, I tell you all that. Like, the future is so great, (laughs) way better than these kind of cheap alternatives, these cheap caricatures that we offer. It's, It's way better. Death will be gone, and you and I will live physically and spiritually forever with Jesus. So Paul says, because Jesus was raised from the dead, that means you are going to be raised from the dead one day. Thirdly, what are the implications? Verses 29 to 34. Sober up. Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, we will be raised from the dead. So then it's like Paul saying, well, then what do we do now? How do we live our lives now? Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Thanks, Paul. That's confusing. <laughs> you go, okay, what, what does that have to do? Paul is like, that, doesn't it seem slightly out of place, slightly odd? You're like, wait a second. Listen, there are hundreds of interpretations, literally, of what on earth Paul's talking about here. 
But there's, there's probably two bigger ones that make the most sense. Number one is either it means just what it says, that people can be baptized on behalf of people who have already died to kind of help them in the afterlife. Here's the problem with that, though. There is zero evidence, literally zero, of this ever happening in the early church. And actually later on, several generations later, uh, in the uh, several hundred years after, uh, when people began to say, oh, maybe we should do this, they were labeled as heretics by church fathers for suggesting that we would baptize on behalf of dead people. So you go, well, that the surface level, well, maybe just Paul means what he means. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, the word on behalf of, or the phrase rather, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of? Um, that can be translated from the Greek to on account of. And when Paul uses, talking about people, he uses the dead, he almost always means the righteous dead, so followers of Jesus. So you could read those verses as, otherwise, why, what do people mean by being baptized on account of the righteous dead, the other followers of Jesus? Here's what I think Paul's getting at is sometimes there were, there were cases, and maybe this was your example, when you read about or hear about other brothers and sisters in the faith who died uh, as martyrs for following Jesus, who lived righteously, and that so impacts you that then you want to believe the gospel and get baptized, so you're not baptized for them, you're baptized on account of their testimony, right? So it, it, it's like Paul is saying, why on earth would you be baptized because of the account of someone else's faith if there is no resurrection? It's, it's silly. Why would the testimonies of missionaries and martyrs inspire you if it's all just fake, he goes on, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul's like second point about how we live our lives, he said, it's just foolishness to die and suffer for the gospel if the resurrection's not true. He's like, why? Paul's like, why am I taking risks? To share the gospel if it's not true. Uh, when he talks about wild beasts, he's most likely referencing uh, political opponents in Ephesus. Because as far as we know, Paul never had to go and battle actual literal beasts in the Colosseum or, or whatever. I, I think he's calling them beasts, which is great. Nice little sting by Paul. Um, but he says, why would I do that? Why would I go and defend myself to all these political enemies if the resurrection's not true? What a waste of time. Like, if you read about what Paul went through, um, he suffered horrifically. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28 says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Five times Paul received 39 lashes Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with stones. You get me? Okay. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Like you go, Paul, why would you do all that if the resurrection's not true? And Paul, Paul's point is, I wouldn't do that. Who would? Oh, I love being adrift at sea for a night and a day. And I have all this anxiety for all of these churches that I've planted and I have to deal with. And he's like, danger here, danger here, danger here. Danger. Paul's like, I wouldn't do any of that if this wasn't true. If the resurrection didn't happen and wouldn't happen in the future. Why would I waste my time, Paul says. Um, he continues, 32b, if the dead aren't raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Like, like that should be our, if, if the resurrection isn't true, then just live your best life now. Just eat and drink, because you might be dead tomorrow. Listen, um, this is the cry of our, our culture. Right? You want to call it hedonistic existentialism. Hedonistic meaning just like, just pursue f- pleasure And existentialism is just like, well, we don't know about anything, so it's very existential. Um, That's what our culture believes, right? YOLO, you only live once, so just live your best life. You do you. Be what you want to be. Do whatever makes you happy. Life is short. I saw uh, um, like a bumper sticker on a truck that said, live fast, die young. Because like if there's nothing else, there's just... Eat and drink, because you're going to die one day. So listen, that attitude existed 2,000 years ago. Paul says, if the resurrection's not true, fine, live like that. But you have to know that that's a lie. It's a lie that you only live once. It is a, a big, fat lie. And I'll just do whatever makes you happy. You do you. I'll do me. Pursue your best life. It's a lie. Paul continues, verse 33, do not be deceived, right? Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Like Paul's whole point is sober up because the resurrection is true. Now, bad company corrupts good morals is an interesting phrase. Um, I, when I was growing up and I was a teenager, there was a, an older guy that skateboarded as well, and he was just so cool in my mind. His name was Alex, and I would hang out lots with Alex, and my parents um, always knew when I had spent time with Alex, because I would come home, and I would act like him, and I was trying to remember what his voice sounded like, but I, I would talk like him, cool skateboard dude or whatever, right? And my mom, my mom especially was like, you were hanging out with Alex, weren't you? I hate it when you hang out with that kid because he influences you and you act like him and you dress like him and you talk like him. Um, many of you know my wife is American and uh, uh, her, her mom was born and raised in Kentucky. Um, and so when we uh, go and visit my wife's family, I, I make fun of her because she, she begins to, she uses a lot more y'alls down there. 
right? So if like our kid fell and got hurt here, she'd be like, are you okay, sweetie? But down there with her family, she's like, are you hurt, honey child? Or whatever, right? Um, That's obviously an exaggeration. But she'll tell you, it's true. Y'all coming for dinner? I'm like, what? Who are you? And so I told her I was going to use this example. And she's like, are you saying my in-laws are bad company? I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But you know this too. Who you spend time with uh, affects you, does it not? Paul's whole point is if you surround yourself with people who believe in a worldview that says just live however you want and this is the only life you get and there's nothing after death, it's going to change you. It will affect you. Who you spend time with changes your worldview. Like he says, bad company corrupts good morals. So wake up is his whole point. Sober up. Don't, don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie that there's nothing after death and your goal is to make your 80 years as comfortable as possible. It is a lie. And if you spend all of your time with people who believe that, it will corrupt you and you will begin to believe it. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then our future res- resurrection is also true. Paul's saying that it, it should shape the way you live your lives. Uh, my, growing up, my parents were missionaries. Um, they, they went to Costa Rica and then Colombia and then Venezuela. And they, when, they, when they left, they had an 8-year-old, a 7-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 1-year-old. And they went to a country that they barely knew the language. And they said, we're going to go and we're going to plant churches. And I know that people said to them, are you insane? You have such a young family. Do that later when you're not putting your kids at risk. And so then we went to Colombia, and, and, and I was maybe two. And after a year, um, the, the guerrilla warfare going on was so dangerous. You would think that my parents would go, oh, we should probably come home to Canada. But they said, uh, let's go to Venezuela. Let's go plant churches in Venezuela. So we planted, no, we, I didn't. I was like three. They planted churches in Venezuela, and I can remember being seven years old, and Hugo Chavez um, staged his big military coup to take over the government and assassinate the president, and I can remember living in our apartment in Venezuela, hearing tanks and machine gun fire and bombs go off, and I can remember my dad saying, okay, I need help. We have to go to the grocery store. I can't carry anything. The men are going. The ladies are going to stay home. We're going to protect them. I can remember driving in the car through the streets as crowds of people are fleeing and riots are happening to get food. And you would ask my parents, are you insane? Why would you do that? And if you ask them today, I know what they would say. Because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are true. So why wouldn't we take risks for the gospel? Don't, listen, don't make decisions to make your short 80 years of life as comfortable as possible compared to eternity in a resurrected body on a restored earth with Jesus. Live for that. Um, John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he wrote a parable once, and he said, imagine that you're on a wagon ride, and you're traveling to a city where you know that you're going to be given a million dollars. And then your wagon breaks, and the wheels fall off, and it's broken. He He said, would you then say, ah, okay, I give up. I guess I'll just go back. He's like, no, of course not. You would say, how far is it to the city? I'm going to walk. Why? Because you know what's waiting for you. Like, let me, let me update it. Let's say that someone paid for you to go on an all-expensive trip to 
Bora Bora or Tahiti, or right where the, the little huts are over the water, and it's so beautiful. And if you were waiting at the airport and it's like, oh, our plane is delayed 30 minutes, would you go, oh, this is unacceptable? You shouldn't, because where are you headed? Like, you should just shut up and just enjoy the delay, because you go, man, I know what's coming, right? A coconut drink in my hammock on the water, so 30 minutes to wait, fine, whatever, Right, so let, let the reality of what's coming shape your life today. Where you go, suffering, pain, okay, I can get through this because I know what's coming. Risks for the gospel, giving away my possessions, gladly, because I know what our future's like. Like, if the resurrection is true, and Paul's whole point is, it is, then you are, you are headed towards an amazing destination if you're in Christ. So Paul would say, so sober up now. Let that reality of what's coming, let it change your short life here. The resurrection is true. Jesus' resurrection is true. Therefore, our future resurrection is true. And let that reality shape your reality now. Live as a citizen of the age to come. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. What an encouragement it is. Um, God, as we think about and dwell about what's, what's coming in the future, um, no wonder the biblical writers often said, oh, come, Lord Jesus. Like, we are ready, man. We want that. Come, Lord Jesus. We are ready for you to conquer your enemy, your enemies, and to destroy death forever, and to raise us from the dead and restore the earth. We're ready for heaven and earth to overlap and for God, you to dwell with us forever. We're ready for that. So God, I pray that the reality of Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection would shape the way that we live our lives now. I mean, I confess, I, I often fall prey to the lie that we just got to make our lives as comfortable as possible here and now. I often fall prey to the lie of, man, I don't want to suffer, I don't want to sacrifice because I just want to be comfortable now. I, I pray, God, that the reality of what's coming would shape our lives now that we would go, man, I will, I will gladly sacrifice. I will gladly give my possessions away. I will gladly take risks for the gospel because I know what my future is. So God, you are the one that has to do that work in our lives. Uh, guilt is not a great motivator. I pray that none of us would leave going, oh, I just feel so guilty and, and ashamed because, and now I'm going to try really hard on my own to, to live better. God, it's your Holy Spirit that has to shape our hearts and the gospel has to change our motivations so that we don't respond out of guilt but out of deep love and gratitude for what you've done for us. That that's our future only because of Jesus, what you've accomplished for us. So may we be motivated by, by love. So just do that work in our hearts, Jesus, we pray. And I pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.